How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet, and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, Sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started this evening, let's have a few moments of silent prayer for make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study the word, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are so very grateful that we can come together this evening, that uh, we have come to understand your grace in our lives, that salvation is by grace, spiritual life is by grace, and that grace is the governing principle for everything in your plan. Father, we just pray that as we study tonight, as we look at the significant chapters in Romans, as we come to uh, grapple with what Paul says in these chapters, that we might come to uh, be reminded that this is all within the framework of grace and uh, not legalism, and that what Paul teaches here is vital for understanding how we grow spiritually, and that this is our uh, our mission and our responsibility to advance to spiritual maturity so that we can uh, have a ministry and fulfill our role within the body of Christ. Father, we pray that you would help us to understand these things tonight. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Our study tonight is in Romans 6. This is one of those uh, lessons that I want to co- where I want to do an overview of Romans 6, 7, and 8. Uh, as you know, there are times as we go through major books that I like to uh, give a flyover, uh, sort of the bird's eye view of a, of a passage or the section of a passage uh, for a number of reasons. First of all, because if we put these overviews together, then they can be listened to by uh, folks in um, a few lessons, five or six, seven lessons, something like that, rather than 50, 60, 70, and this is especially good if you're uh, teaching, uh, for example, if you're teaching in prep school or something like that, where you need a condensed version so that you can grasp the overall uh, movement of a a passage or a book and get the main ideas down um, rather than wading through 70, 80, 90 hours when you have only, uh, let's say, six or seven hours to teach through something uh, that helps to have that more of a condensed version. Plus, it also helps us as a whole just to, when, whenever you look at any part of Scripture, to try to get a a basic summary of what is being said, a basic trajectory of the argument uh, as we then go um, go into the details of, of the passage. So Romans 6, 7, and 8 really do hang together as chapters, and I want to look at that as a whole. But before we do that... I want to take us back to uh, Matthew 22 and address a question that was sent in by one of one of the uh, regular regular uh, listeners. This question actually came in back in May. Um, I've been a little uh, late answering it, primarily because I was traveling, and um, and then the Lord's timing. I think it also also fits pretty well with this. So you might want to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 22. This goes back to a lesson. Uh, Romans lesson 51. We're up to 65 right now, I believe, and so we're about. Uh, this is, goes back about uh, probably to April or March, uh, sometime in there. 
While you're turning there, I wanted to also make another uh, announcement uh, related to a conversation I had this afternoon. Those of you who've been around for a while remember that uh, I think it was three or four years ago, I can't remember now, uh, we had uh, uh, the Chafer Conference in March was on the topic of creation and evolution. We had Dr. John Whitcomb in the morning. We had Steve Austin at night dealing with a lot of different fo- uh, aspects of uh, geology. He is just a, an expert on the whole issue of Mount St. Helens and on um, also the Grand Canyon. Uh, at the time, he was he had been with ICR, the Institute for Creation Research, for uh, a number of years since the early 70s. Uh, he is no longer with ICR. He's doing several other different things now, but he's still basically doing the same thing. He's sort of uh, uh, I don't know if you've been following ICR, but they've moved from Southern California to Dallas, and it's changed some of the focus of their ministry has changed because of that geographical shift. And so, so some faculty that they had didn't make the transition with them. Steve was one of them. Um, anyway, one of the things that Steve is still doing is is conducting uh, Grand Canyon tours, uh, seven-day rafting through the Grand Canyon and going through all of the geology and history uh, of the Grand Canyon in relation to flood geology. And this is something I've been wanting to do for uh, a number of years, and so we're in the process of working out uh, a trip next June. It would be probably a total trip length of eight days um, with seven days and in, in, in they have huge boats. These are like 35 by 17 foot rafts that are motorized that you take through the canyon, and and so they provide all the equipment and everything. So it's not quite as rugger, rigorous as it sounds, but it may be warm. Anyway, so he called today this afternoon. We didn't have time to go through much more detail than what I just announced. But if you're interested, you watch the website, the Dean Bible website, for an, for an announcement on on those details. But uh, when he was here four or five years ago, he made the uh, we, we had a lot of great conversations, and one of the issues that he wasn't very clear on was this whole issue on the debate between uh, what is called free gr- the free grace gospel and lordship salvation. And lordship salvation, for those of you who are not familiar with it, lordship salvation comes out of a a uh, very strong reformed, that is Calvinist, by that I mean a Calvinistic theology, a five-point Calvinistic theology framework, and is set over against a free grace understanding of the gospel, not an Arminian view of the gospel, but a free grace view of the gospel. And there are many who are uh, somewhat Calvinistic in their understanding of uh, the doctrines of salvation who are free, free grace, and that may moderate many of us who are who hold to a free grace gospel do not hold to uh, either a an Arminian view or a Calvinistic view. These are viewed as the two polar opposites, and we believe there is a a more consistent biblical view that is neither Arminian nor Calvinist, but is uh, free grace. And so. Um, uh, having said that, that relates to the topic of this particular question because I took some time in the uh, in Romans Lesson 51 to deal with Matthew 22. Well, in our conversations with Steve uh, three or four years ago, 
we got into some really interesting discussions then, and I forget what the other, some of the other papers that were given during that week also, a couple of them dealt with the gospel. I think Fred Librand might have presented one paper on, um, on the gospel. In fact, I think his book had just come out uh, that he had written on the topic related to the James 2 passage in Faith Without Works is Dead and what he calls the uh, uh, sort of the, uh, what is he called, the evangelical cliche, something like that, that, that the, the, the view that uh, while we're saved by faith alone, the faith that saves is never alone. And this is a cliche you'll often hear people say, and it's not biblical, and he wrote an entire book on that topic, and Steve read it, and Steve, first thing that Steve told me today, because we hadn't talked since three or four years ago, he said, I just want you to know I've been studying this whole issue between lordship, salvation, and free grace, and I just love understanding the free grace gospel. Isn't that great? So he just has really clarified his understanding of the gospel on that. So that kind of fits with what I'm, with this particular question. The question that came in, uh, was, uh, uh, this person said that they just finished listening to the Roman study and where I had touched on Matthew 22, 1 through 14. After reading the book, The Reign of the Servant Kings by Jody Dillo, that's this book here, she says, Dillo thinks that this passage is speaking of believers who fritter away their salvation and did not have the righteous works they needed to enter into the wedding banquet, the one Jesus calls friend. It looks like they're all in the kingdom, and not all will get into the wedding feast. And she's wondering what I think of this particular uh, interpretation. Well, just to remind you a little bit, this is a parable that Jesus teaches. In verse 2, he says, The kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son, sent on his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Again, he sent out other servants, saying, Tell those who are invited, so you have prepared my dinner, oxen, blah, 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 come to the wedding, but they made light of it. That is, those who were initially invited, and um, they seized the servants, treated them spitefully, killed them, and when the king heard about it, he was furious. He sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, burned up their city. They sent to his servants, uh, said to his servants, the wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. Therefore, go into the highways, and as many as you find, invite to the wedding. And so those servants went out into the highways, gathered together all whom they found, both bad and good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guests, he saw a man there who did not have on a wedding garment. So he said to him, Friend, how did you come in here without a wedding garment? And he was speechless. And the king said to the servants, Bind him hand and foot, take him away, cast him into outer darkness, and there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Okay, let me give you a little background here. The book, The Reign of the Servant Kings, is, in my opinion, probably the best single-volume book on free grace theology. And many of us have read it, but that doesn't mean just because it's the, one of the best books on free grace theology that you or I will agree with everything that is in here. I do not. And I think, and when I, the first time I read it, when it came out in 1992, I read it uh, uh, back then, uh, I had serious questions about how he handles some of the um, some of the parables, especially the kingdom parables. In Matthew, there are a number of these kingdom parables. And the problem that you get with, that I think is, that I fault Dillo with is one I fault many theologians with, is you are theologically correct in your theological system, and then you go read it into passages where it doesn't belong. 
And that's what he's done. The kingdom parables in Matthew all relate to Israel. Every single one of them relate to Israel and what God is doing in terms of his plan with Israel. In the parable of the wedding feast, uh, this is this is no different. Uh, the king is, uh, by analogy, the king is God. Those who are initially invited to the wedding feast are, are, are is Israel. But they reject the Messiah. They reject the invitation of God to establish the kingdom at the first coming. And so they are, they are rejected. And then the gospel goes out to everybody in the world. And this is the inclusion of, uh, of the Gentiles, uh, <clears throat> within the, within the kingdom. And those, the, the one who shows up and doesn't have the right garments is the one, it's not that he doesn't have, uh, the right kind of works, uh, based on rewards. Uh, but that he is doesn't have imputed righteousness. Dillo makes a similar error, I believe, when you get into Matthew chapter 25, uh, where he deals with the parable of the wise and foolish virgins. And I bring this up because coincidentally, when this question came in, which was about six weeks ago, about three weeks ago, I had two other emails from a couple of other people uh, about this same topic. So it's a uh, it's good that people are reading and learning and studying, but always remember there are excellent books to read. There, Chafer's Systematic Theology is excellent, but he is dead wrong on a couple of things, one of which is he has an excellent and intricate argument for about 30 pages on why the baptism of John the Baptist was sprinkling and not immersion. He's just dead wrong. Presbyterian Lewis Berry Chafer couldn't get out of his sprinkling mode. Walvert held the same view. Dr. Walvert was ordained Presbyterian. I had three ordained Presbyterian, uh, old-school Presbyterian uh, seminary professors, and they all practiced infant baptism in sprinkling. And um, uh, it may surprise some of you, but we have to recognize that, you know, within our various... uh, uh, schools of thought that we have in terms of, of theology, dispensationalism, free grace. No two people agree. It's hard to find one person who agrees with himself, you know, two decades apart sometimes because we grow we, and we come to a better understanding of the text. And so there are these these differences. So just because somebody is a good writer and a good thinker and has presented an excellent framework for something doesn't mean that they're always right. And I think in, what was it, uh, in the Acts class Tuesday night a week ago, as we talked about the, the situation with uh, uh, Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, whether or not he was saved, that is one of those classic passages that we run into in the text where even people who are mostly free grace or have a good understanding or maybe uh, when they wrote about that back in the 70s or or early 80s hadn't thought through as many of the issues as have been become apparent today that um, uh, they you know mistakes are made and uh, over time uh, things become clearer. So uh, no, there are clearly some areas in Dillo's book. I think his overall framework is is correct. Uh, his emphasis on uh, the uh, free grace gospel and that many of the passages related to discipleship and other things are, relate to the spiritual life and rewards and uh, inheritance. I think he's he's very good on many of those issues, but there are a few places here and there where I would not agree with his uh, his conclusions. Uh, 
Okay, let's go to Romans chapter 6. This is such a crucial section, uh, Romans chapter 6, in understanding um, understanding the spiritual life, the whole process whereby we are sanctified. That is, and that's the focal point here, is on sanctification. In the last few weeks, I've talked about some of the key terms that we find in this section. We have life versus death, the emphasis on holiness or sanctification, and righteousness, and then not until we get one mention of the Holy Spirit in Romans 7, but it's not until we get into Romans chapter 8 that we start seeing this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. So that would be another key term, set of terms that I would add to that would be flesh versus versus uh, the spirit. And uh, just in terms of an overview, the broadest overview to give you a focal point on how to understand Romans 6, 7, and 8, I want to give you, uh, I think I have nine summary points. First of all, the foundation of Paul's explanation is who we now are in Christ. That is foundational. It's the beginning of uh, Romans 6, and the first um, seven verses uh, ground his understanding on what is what we refer to as the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. In the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit, at the instant of salvation, we are placed in Christ. Where I, and that means that we are uh, intimately and eternally identified with his death, burial, and resurrection. And it's that resurrection aspect that is so vital because that is the point of his analogy so that uh, the purpose of that is that as Christ was raised to new life, so we are raised to a new life that we are to walk in, and that's the end of, Rome, of uh, Romans 6.4, that we should walk in newness of life. Uh, the purpose of becoming saved isn't just so we can spend eternity in heaven, but so that we can have a fullness of life here today, that we can glorify God in our life today, that we can be a uh, consistent uh, witness for him, that we can grow to spiritual maturity and serve him uh, in the body of Christ, in the local church, and be used by him as an outreach to a fallen fallen world. So the foundation of this explanation is understanding who we are in Christ. Second, Living the spiritual life is presented by Paul as being now possible only because a total break with the power of the sin nature occurred at the instant of justification. He presents this as an absolute transition that takes place that at the instant of salvation, that tyranny of the sin nature is completely and irrevocably broken. But that doesn't mean that we don't have a sin nature and that we cannot yield to it. This leads into what we'll discover in the second uh, chapter in this section, Romans 7, dealing with the fact that there are now two natures. Now, uh, you you may not be aware of this. Some people come from different backgrounds, but uh, some theologians get all wrapped around the axle when you use the term nature. And all we mean by nature is a capacity for something. Okay, a capacity for something. And a sin nature uh, does not refer to a, to a concrete something, but it refers to the fact that the uh, that the human body, specifically the the uh, a human person, human being, 
is under the penalty of sin and has been corrupted in terms of his core constitution by sin. And so there is this proclivity to rebellion against God and to sin. And prior to salvation, because the person is spiritually dead, there is only one option in life, and that is to live like a spiritually dead person, uh, separated from God, divorced from the source of life, incapable of doing anything that has eternal value uh, before God. And this is how everybody is, no matter how good or wonderful, uh, no matter how intelligent, no matter how productive, no matter how kind somebody is, they're still an unbelief. They're still not producing the kind of righteousness that is characteristic of God. And that's the theme that Paul has here. So, uh, it's not until we receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness and we're declared just and regenerated, become a new creature in Christ, that that power is broken. But that that power is still there, and the habit patterns formed as an unbeliever are, are still there. So that the ultimate issue under point number three, the ultimate issue then becomes our volition. We make of our lives what we choose to make of them. It ultimately boils down to responding to what God says is true because God says it's true. He says that we are now dead to the sin nature and we should not yield to the sin nature. We should not become put ourselves back in a position of slavery to the sin nature because positionally we are now slaves of righteousness. So it's, but it's our decision. Uh, we have this battle that goes on inside the uh, the Christian life. See, this, this whole issue of the believer and sin is one that has plagued the Christianity from, from the very beginning. What do you do with somebody who is a child of God but sins like a child of the devil and where they, they, they don't look any different? And the basic responses for many people down through the ages have been that, well, maybe they're not really saved. And that reflects a somewhat shallow view of, of sin, and it also reflects a shallow view of grace because we still are capable of as many sins and living just like we did uh, before uh, salvation. This is why we have these injunctions from Paul that we should no longer uh, be slaves of sin. And uh, six six, for example, ends with that. Well, if we can't actually still be slaves of sin or enslave ourselves back under the mastery of sin, then that renders that whole concept just a uh, a, a moot point. But if if we can put ourselves back in that position of being a slave to sin, then that means that it's possible for a believer, a child of God to live, act, think as if he's an unbeliever, and you can't look at his life. Uh, where there's any difference. And this is one of those areas that really does divide in this debate between um, free grace gospel and what is called lordship gospel. In the lordship camp, there is a, a, a belief that if you are truly regenerate, then there are certain sins that you can't or won't commit or you won't commit them for very long, or they will only character, characterize your life for a short period of time. But if you are a true believer, 
then these will not characterize your life and that somehow you can look at your life or someone else can look at your life and determine from the, quote, fruit that is there whether or not you are a believer. And this is not what the fruit passages talk, are, are talking about, and it's not consistent with the free offer of salvation in, in the Scripture. Uh, can Christians sin? You bet they can. Can they sin egregiously? You bet they can. Uh, can they live like an unbeliever, act like an unbeliever uh, for most of their life, if not for the rest of their life after they're saved? You bet they can. That doesn't change who they are and their, their new position in Christ. They're just rebellious children. They're the prodigal son that never comes home, but he's still a son. Uh, fourth point, spiritual growth is, uh, is, is more than simply a choice. It's a choice that is based on biblical truth. There's an emphasis throughout this section on coming to know everything that God has provided for us, that it's not just a matter of choosing not to sin versus sinning. It is a choice that is based upon a, a growing, increasing knowledge of truth. As Peter says in Second Peter 3.18, we grow in, by the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not apart from knowledge. Uh, knowledge alone is insufficient. It's, it needs something else even, which uh, is the Holy Spirit. Fifth point is that the consequences that are presented throughout this section are life or death, not in terms of an eternal life, in terms of eternity in heaven, or an eternal death in terms of eternal condemnation, but and talk about experiencing the fullness of life here and now in this life, or in contrast, being a believer, but living like you're spiritually dead and experiencing a life of corruption because you live on the basis of the sin nature. So the consequences are not just eternal, they focus on present realities. Uh, sixth point is, that Paul is making throughout this section is that human effort and morality is not only ir irrelevant, but it is incapable of solving the problem. Human effort and morality can't do it. There's a difference between morality and spirituality. Spirituality has to do with this walk according to the Spirit, which comes into play in, in the eighth chapter. And in the seventh chapter, Paul, as a believer, is still trying to do it according to the law, which is a one system of morality, and it's not, it's not, it doesn't work. So morality and human effort are irrelevant in the sense that they can't overcome the problem of the sin nature. How, and answering the question, well, how do I live as a slave of righteousness it can't be done by just trying to be moral, trying to do the right thing. It can only be done, Romans 8, covers the ch chapter 8 covers it, by walking according to the Spirit. Seventh overview principle is that uh, Paul emphasizes that the law is good, but it's limited. And the limitation of the law is that it only exposes sin. It only makes us uh, more and more aware of the 
um, of how sinful we are. The more you have uh, various uh, various uh, uh, prohibitions, the more you're aware of the extent of sin in the life. But it doesn't provide power to overcome the sin. So the law is good but limited. It only exposes sin. It doesn't provide the power to overcome sin. And then the eighth point is that every believer struggles with sin. The more mature we are, the more you grow as a believer, the more you realize how exceedingly sinful sin is and how pervasive it is in our life and in our thinking. And as we become more conscious of of sin, then uh, we become more aware of it so that the new believer isn't as conscious of sin as a more mature uh, believer. And the more you grow and mature as a believer, become aware of the sinfulness of sin and the uh, extensiveness of sin, then you realize how totally impossible it is to live the, the, the Christian life. It can't be done, and our power can only be done through the power of the Holy Spirit, which is the ninth power. Only when we understand the provision we have in Christ and by the Spirit uh, can we relax and have genuine spiritual uh, growth and victory. And that's the eighth chapter. So we have the sixth chapter then focuses on uh, what <clears throat> what we have in, in Christ. The sixth chapter focuses on uh, our position in Christ and all that we are uh, given in Christ. And then the uh, seventh chapter uh, focuses on the fact that it, we're incapable of solving these problems on our own and uh, through morality. And then the eighth chapter focuses on what we've been given in terms of of uh, God the Holy Spirit. So Romans uh, 6 focuses on our new identity in Christ. Romans 7 focuses on um, the uh, uh, consequences that as a, in terms of uh, not being able to do this on our own just by do, wanting to do the right thing. And, and that leads to a point of tension and frust- complete frustration. And the only solution is going to be then in terms of uh, the spiritual life. So let's just kind of do an overview. And we'll start off in Romans 6 by looking at the, the basics, uh, the basic foundation in Romans 6. Uh, one through four. Uh, Paul begins, and it's interesting as we go through this and when we get into it in a little more detail, I'll point out how he advances his, his uh, explanation by using rhetorical questions. And these are often questions that he has probably heard from uh, those who either, A, don't understand what he has been saying, so they want clarification, or from someone who uh, is objecting to what he is saying, and so he uh, uses those questions to bring further clarification. That's an excellent way to, to teach, by the way, is to raising these kinds of questions that people that may come into uh, people's minds. So coming out of Romans 5, he says, What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? If sin caused God to give us his grace to bestow all of this on us freely, then if we sin more, we'll ju- God will just give us more. So why not just sin more? That's the uh, sort of the antinomian 
uh, presentation. And Paul completely rejects it in verse 2, raising the question, how shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? And that's the foundation of what he is saying in really the first uh, 10 or 11 verses, actually down to about verse 14, is that we have died to sin. Now, that's an important concept to think about is what does it mean to be dead to sin? Does it mean that there is no longer any temptation? Does it mean that we are no longer uh, able to to sin like we did before we were, were a believer? Uh, what does that mean? And the idea of death in Scripture often has the idea of a separation from something. And so what we see here is not an absolute separation, but a separation from the power or the dominion of sin. And so then he goes immediately into the explanation of this important doctrine, which is uh, Romans um, uh, 6, uh, 1 through 4, four uh, or, or basically 3 and 4, where he says, um, Therefore we were buried with him through bapt- uh Excuse me, verse 3. Do you not know that as many of us as were baptized or identified, that's the significance there as we'll see, into Christ Jesus were identified into his death. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So he makes this transition based on understanding what happens at salvation. Now, what's important there is he's talking about a non-experiential event. So we have to trust what the, the Scriptures describe and implement that. That means we have to understand it, and then we have to live in, as in light of it. So the faith principle there is that we recognize and live as a new creature uh, in Christ. So the key idea here is the whole idea, as I have underlined the key words, sin and grace, the fact that we've died to sin, we've been identified with Christ Jesus and his death for the purpose of walking in newness of life. Now, as we look at these first 11 verses, I've kind of uh, highlighted a few things and circled a few things in these slides so we can just see the uh, way in which this develops. Uh, Paul begins to build his explanation, which is typical of the way Paul uh, develops things in a very intricate, very logical manner. And a lot of times he will lay out an assumption that if this is true, then logically the next thing follows. It's very rational. It's very logical. That doesn't mean it's less spiritual. It is a reflection upon the fact that God is inherently logical and consistent, and he has created us in his image, so we should be as well. So it begins in verse 5 with, uh, For if he lays down a condition, He has further explanation, verse 7, for he who has died has been freed from sin, and then he builds to the next level of his argument, if we died with Christ, we believe that we also, we shall also live with him. Uh, And notice that, and I don't have this, I do have it highlighted in the next slide, we have uh, the phrase knowing this in verse 6, and then knowing that Christ in verse 9. So in the middle of both of these sections, there's an emphasis on knowing something. And this isn't just an abstract knowledge. It's a recognition of of learning something that actually took place. Uh, 
before God. Uh, in 6.10, we're told, uh, again, notice he begins the verse with a four. For the death that he died, he died to sin. So this is explaining uh, the principle at the end of verse 9, that death no longer has dominion over him, that is, over Christ. Why? Because the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. So there's a complete break that occurs there. And then he makes his point, his analogy. He says, likewise, in the same way, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. And that command, reckon, is the same word that's used in relation to uh, imputation. It's legizomai. It has to do with drawing a logical conclusion and thinking a certain way. Con, uh, and, and the New American Standard translates it, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. That means consider that there should be this separation in your life from the dominion of sin, but instead that you are alive to God in Christ. And that phrase in Christ is foundational for understanding this shift that has occurred from the death of the old man and the body of sin in verse 6, that now we are freed from sin. The sin nature is still there. So there's this transition that goes on. Then in the next section from 12 through 19, notice we have a conclusion in verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Now, that's a direct command to the believer. Don't let sin dominate your life. And how do you do that? Well, and he goes on, he adds to that. He says, and do not present your members, that is, your, your body, members there represents the entirety of your life. Don't present your life uh, as instruments of unrighteousness. You have a choice, life or death, righteousness or unrighteousness, your choice. Uh, don't let sin reign. Don't pre- uh, present your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But then there's a contrast there that comes into play. Do not present, but present yourselves to God as alive from the dead. Why? Verse 14, for sin shall not have dominion over you. It, this, is, this is a statement of the way it ought to be, not the way it is. You should not, because you are a child of God, you should not let sin uh, have dominion or rule over you. Why? Because you are not under law, but under grace. Now, this is the beginning of this contrast that he's going to bring in over the next, that we'll see in chapter 7 and chapter 8, of this contrast between law and grace. Grace does not mean because we're freed from sin uh, and the penalty of sin that we, therefore, are free to sin as much as we like. That is not the idea. He says uh, sin should not have dominion under us because we're under grace. Even more so, it should not be present in our lives. What then? He said, shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And again, this is another rhetorical question. Somebody might say, well, since we're under grace, it really doesn't matter. We have, it's all covered. The the sin penalty is paid. I don't have to worry about my eternal destiny. I'm a child of God. Uh, 
That doesn't really matter. He says, no, that is a false conclusion. Do you not know? Again, coming back to the knowledge issue, do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness. Now, notice here he's not talking to unbelievers. He said, you're going to obey God, and it will lead you to righteousness. This is experiential righteousness. He's talking to believers. Or you will present yourself to sin, and that will lead to death, not physical death, not eternal death, not the second death, but it is uh, you're going to experience the same death-like consequences in your life that uh, an unbeliever experiences. It has no value. It has no eternal value. It will bring corruption and destruction uh, into your into your life. Uh, there are consequences to sin, even though there is grace for forgiveness. There are still consequences for uh, for sin. But the contrast is that God's grace is always uh, greater than sin. There's always forgiveness. And verse 17, he says, But God be thanked that though you were uh, slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine or teaching to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, or that's probably a causal participle because you have been set free from sin, you became, past tense, slaves of righteousness. So at the instant of salvation, we had uh, an authority shift. The authority before salvation was the sin nature. The authority afterward is God. There's no neutrality. You're either uh, you're a slave to uh, the dominion of the sin nature, and then at the instant of salvation, you become a slave of righteousness to God. Ah, but do you act like an obedient slave or a disobedient slave? And so Paul is saying, if you act like a disobedient slave, you're going to reap all the negative consequences that go to a disobedient slave, and you're going to self-destruct. You might not self-destruct immediately. There might be some good times before you self-destruct, but eventually there's self-destruction. A couple of other things to note is that we have been, uh, the green uh, squares were alive from the dead in 613, because uh, and and now we are to present ourselves as slaves of righteousness for what for holiness that's the king james but the greek is really sanctification for our experiential sanctification so verse 19 emphasizes the fact that we are now to present ourselves and that's a decision making term the old term was yield and that picked up a lot of uh, extraneous baggage under the old victorious life teaching and Keswick teaching. Um, if you're not familiar with that, I'll go into that a little bit as we go through this. But it was it emphasized this yieldedness all the time, and people didn't really understand that so much. That's antiquated language. It's the idea of making a decision to be obedient to God and the Scriptures and to walk by the Spirit. Uh, and keeping uh, short accounts in that that direction for the purpose of sanctification. So we have to be a slave of righteousness in order to get to sanctification. That's the process. Now in verses 20 to 23, we see a summary of the argument up to this point. He says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free with regard to righteousness. In other words, 
You couldn't be righteous. When you were a slave to sin before you were saved, you could not produce righteousness. It was impossible. That's the same thing that the prophet Isaiah says in the uh, Hebrew Scriptures, that, uh, um, that all of our works of righteousness are as filthy rags. Uh, we can't produce it as in our status of being unregenerate or unjustified. He then says in verse 21, Well, what fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? What was the fruit of that activity? What was the fruit of that activity? And the fruit is death. For the end of those things is death. If you walk according to the flesh, according to the sin nature, as a slave of sin, then the end result is death. That's true for the unbeliever, but it also, but that would also include eternal condemnation. But it's true for the believer, it doesn't include eternal condemnation, but it means that in terms of life now, then there's a death-like experience because we are producing uh, corruption uh, from our sin nature. And so it ends up having all sorts of uh, negative consequences in, in our lives. But the contrast, he says, is presented in verse 22, but now uh, because we have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness. And that word, that idea, fruit to holiness, there was fruit before, verse 21, what fruit did you have when you were an unbeliever and a slave of unrighteousness? It produced the fruit of death. But now there's a fruit, a production to sanctification, to spiritual growth, and the end result is everlasting life. Not in the sense of life in heaven, but in the sense of that abundant life that is uh, part of what we are given at the instant of, of uh, salvation. That there are many passages in Scripture that talk about eternal life not as a future reality but as a present possession. John 3.16 talks about it that way. John 5.24, John 6.47, and many of the passages in John that talk about eternal life that we have it present tense. Uh, it is a reality today. Jesus said in John 10.10, 10, I came not like a thief to steal and destroy, but to give life and to give it abundantly. So Paul's conclusion is in verse uh, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And here he uses the imagery of a laborer who gets the consequences uh, related to his labor. And so if he spends his uh, labor in sin, then the, he gets paid in kind, which is death. And if he does not, then it results in eternal life. It is a restatement of what is uh, clear from verses 21 uh, through 22. So he's not talking here about getting eternal life at justification, but the fullness of that life, realizing all of its blessings uh, here and now. But this raises another question. That is, well, how do I do this? How do I consider myself dead to sin? How do I experience this fullness of life today? Do I just go out and do what the Scripture says to do and obey all of these commandments? 
Uh, tried that, been there, done that, got the T-shirt, and it's just a, that's just uh, like every other uh, world religion somehow, just morally reform your life and you'll be okay. But we can't do that. And Paul, at coming out of a, his pharisaical background, recognizes that that there is an absolute incapability to ever become or have any point in time that's not uh, governed by the sin nature. The law just can't do it. And when we get into this next section in Romans uh, Romans 7, looking at Romans 7, 1 through, uh, 1 through 6, it uh, talks about the law, the relation of the law to the Christian life. Is it possible? Now, the word law here is not talking about general law, even though it doesn't have an, uh, an article in the Hebrew, excuse me, in the Greek, Nevertheless, in many, many passages in the New Testament where the Mosaic Law is in view, it is expressed without the use of a, um, of a definite article in, 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 the, um, in the Greek. So in 7, 1 through 6, Paul is actually picking up a thread that he's already talked about back in uh, the beginning of this uh, previous section in 6.15, he raised the question, what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And so now he's going to talk more about this issue of not being under law. And so he's explaining what it means that we're no longer under law. And he uh, makes the statement, again, a rhetorical question of, in verse 1, do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law. So he's speaking to those who understand the Mosaic law, uh, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. So he's going to use an analogy now from, from marriage. And there are many who go to this as a passage that has something to say about marriage and divorce, and it's, that's not relevant. He, he's really using an analogy from the law related to marriage, that when two people are married, that marriage lasts until death. And when death occurs, the, 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 the living spouse is no longer uh, under the authority of the, of the person who died, no longer in, in that marriage. It has, this, this is a narrow use of an analogy, and you never build doctrines off of analogies. What I mean by that is that he's making a point that when the uh, when a death occurs, then the relationship ends. That's all he's saying. He's not giving us an exposition here of uh, legitimate reasons for uh, divorce or marriage or remarriage. That's not what he's talking about. He's just talking about the, just only one aspect of that whole analogy, and that is, when a death occurs, the relationship ends. And so what he's saying here is because we have died to the law in terms of our identification with Christ and his death, then there's no longer a relationship to the law in its entirety, not even to the... Uh, it's not... Uh, he doesn't say, well, you're, um, you're still under the ceremonial law but not the sacrificial law. It's a totality thing and it's there's a complete break that takes that, that occurs there and so that law no longer has a binding nature 
But he's not saying that because we're not under law that we can therefore be lawless. He's not saying that. He is simply saying that we are not under the Mosaic law as a standard of living. According to, this makes it very clear that there, that God has changed the way he is administering history, administering his authority to believers. In the Old Testament, that administration of his authority uh, was through the Mosaic law, which was a covenant, a temporary covenant that God made with uh, with Israel and only with Israel. No uh, non-Israelite, no Gentile was ever held accountable to the precepts of the Mosaic law. If you go th- through all of the... Uh, uh, judgments in the prophets related to the Gentile kingdoms. They are judged for their disobedience uh, to God in terms of idolatry. They're judged in terms of their hostility to the Jews. They're judged in terms of um, of their 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 paganism. But they are not judged, for example, for violation of the Sabbath. That would indicate that they were under the Mosaic law. The Jews, on the other hand, that was one of the reasons that they're taken out of the land and judged is because they ignored the law and they ignored the Sabbath law. And so they have to be taken out of the land over a period of time until uh, until they are going to be, uh, the land is restored and the land has its rest and those Sabbath years have been observed. And so there's no indication that uh, any Gentile is ever held accountable to anything that is distinctive to the Mosaic law. So all Paul is saying here is that that the law is, the, uh, the authority of the law over the believer is no longer valid. There's been a dispensational change. Dispensation is just a term uh, that is uh, an older English word. Today it would be translated by, and it is translated by the term administration. God is shifted how he's administering uh, his people, and it's no longer through the Mosaic law. In verse 5, Paul says, For when we were in the flesh, the sin, that, that is, as unbelievers, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law. So he deals with the purpose of the law here is to expose and sin and to make it um, clear how, how extensive sin is. <coughs> He said these sinful passions were aroused by the law, were working our members to bear fruit to death. See, that connects it right back to what he was talking about in uh, in verse 21, uh, fruit and death, and shows he's continuing the same basic line of thought. In Romans 7, uh, uh, 7, he starts the, uh, or 7, 6, he says, but now we've been delivered from the law, uh, having died to what we were held by. There's a complete break there that occurs. We're dead to the law. We're dead to sin nature. There's a complete break so that we should serve, so that expresses the purpose so that we should serve in the newness of the spirit and not the oldness of the letter. So there's clearly a distinction in the spiritual life of the church age. It's a first mention of the Holy Spirit, clearly a distinction in the spiritual life of the church age from that which went on prior to the cross. Now, that's very important because in most systems of sanctification, I'll talk more about this later, there's about nine or ten, depending on how you break things down, uh, different models or views of the spiritual life. There's the Roman Catholic model, the mystical contemplative model, Lutheran model, Reform model, 
uh, all these different views on the spiritual life, but only the dispensational model puts the emphasis on walking by the Spirit. The other models do not. And um, you can go back and listen to a lot of the uh, material from the Trafer Pastors Conference a uh, year before last, 2011, on this. But only the dispensational model really came out with this kind of an emphasis on walking by the Holy Spirit as distinct from the Reform model, the Lutheran model, etc. They were still going back to the Mosaic Law as the pattern for the spiritual life. And this is legalism and in violation of this particular passage. So Paul goes on in these verses to talk about the fact that the law never gave him life. He was never able to really experience that fullness of life. I'm running a little short here on time, so I'm going to speed up a little bit. Basically, the thrust of the rest of Romans 7 is in 13 through 17, Paul is talking about, uh, or excuse me, 7 through 12, Paul is talking about his previous experience with uh, the law, that the law could not produce uh, freedom because, as he says, when you had the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. It's, a, it's not an external thing. It's an internal uh, mental attitude, and he realized that that was present in almost everything that he did, so he couldn't get away from his violation of the law. Then in verse 9, something really interesting happens here. Um, it's up here on the screen. He says, I was alive once without the law. That's a, a fascinating term because you're dead until you're regenerate. And this is a term that relates to regeneration, indicating that at this point I became alive or I was uh, uh, made alive uh, once without the law. The law did not bring about regeneration. But when the commandment came, that is, after regeneration, when the commandment came, when he goes back to trying to live his spiritual life on the basis of obeying the Mosaic law, he says, sin revived and I died. He said, he's basically saying, this is a, a, impossible to live the spiritual life. I went back into what I referred to the last time as carnal death, and this is what Paul talks about at Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. He, he recognizes he's a sinner and he's, 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 He's dead. He's not spiritually dead, but he is producing a death-like life. And that the commandment could not bring life, following the law could not bring life, but it, it killed me. So in the subsequent verses from uh, verse 13 on, he answers the next question, has, uh, has then what is good, that is the law, become death in me? No. The law simply exposes sin, and he's become more aware that he is sin, and, uh, and that he is sinful, that he is carnal, that he is still uh, can be controlled by sin. And so then he, in the next passage from verse 16 down to about verse uh, 22, he expresses this conflict that many of us have experienced so well. He says uh, in verse 15, what I am doing, I don't understand. For what I want to do, that's not what I practice. I want to be obedient to God, but that's not what I practice. But what I hate, that is, I don't want to sin, but that ends up being exactly what I do. Verse 16, he says, If then I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. So sin just takes over. 
And he says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells. For to will is present with me. In other words, I want to do the right thing. But how to perform what is good, I don't find. I can't figure out how to pull myself up by my own bootstraps and be good on my own. Verse 19, for the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil I don't want to do, that's what I practice. Now, if I do what I don't want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And he goes on to finally, and he builds to the, to, to the crescendo of verse 24 and 25. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? He is to, expresses total frustration. I, I, I want to obey God, but I can't do it. And when I don't want to do, when I uh, know something is wrong and I don't want to do it, that's exactly what I end up doing. How can I serve the law of God when I am controlled by this body of sin? And so we get into the solution in chapter 8, which has to do with walking according to the Spirit. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation. Now, this is important because often we quote this verse in terms of eternal condemnation. But as I keep saying, this section isn't about what happens after we die. It's about what's going on right now. He says, therefore, now there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then uh, the rest of that verse is actually, uh, there's a textual problem there. It's probably not in the original uh, starting, but it recognizes, I mean, even the addition there recognizes, uh, it's probably brought in from verse 4, it recognizes the principle all through this section of the contrast between walking uh, the law of the Spirit versus the law of sin and death. Verse 4, walking according to the flesh, or not walking according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Uh, Verse 5, those who live according to the flesh or the sin nature set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds, it's left out, but that's the idea, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. In other words, it's your mental attitude and your mental focus, it's going to make a difference. And if you don't build that mental attitude by taking in the word day in and day out, then you're not going to be focused on the things of the Spirit and the things that have eternal value. And so this continues down through uh, verses uh, 14 through 17, where he's going to bring in the whole issue of ultimate reward and blessing in terms of inheritance in a passage that we've studied uh, many times. Uh, verse 17, if, if we're children of God, then we are heirs, that is, heirs of God, and the comma should come there. That's the first category of inheritance that all believers have in common. And then joint heirs with Christ, no comma, if indeed we suffer with him. That is, that this second category of inheritance is based on our spiritual growth related to uh, obedience to Christ. He brings in the idea of suffering, which becomes the next topic, verses 18 through 39, which is the transition to chapter 9. So the spiritual life section really ends here with 17. After that, it starts focusing on how to, uh, how to handle, uh, how to handle suffering and the faithfulness of God down through the end of the chapter. So that's a quick overview. It's a quick flyover, but it gives us the general focus of these chapters. Next time I'll come back and we will go through the initial part in terms of the uh, foundation 
of being uh, this new life that we have in Christ and what that entails. Now, that's a good review for most of us. We've gone through baptism of the Holy Spirit recently, so I won't go through that in as much detail. There's no uh, need for it. I'll just give a good summary of that, and then we can move through it. But this is foundational if we're going to understand how to ever grow in the Christian life. Father, thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and to uh, press forward in the spiritual life, recognizing that we're a new creature in Christ, new capabilities, new identity, new family, uh, new resources. Uh, everything is new, and we need to live in light of that newness, that that is the reality. And uh, even though we have habits, even though we have patterns, even though we have uh, external pressures that are there from before the time that we were saved. Nevertheless, as we learn to your word, your provision, the power that we have, we can indeed live in such a way that we are no longer slaves uh, dominated by the sin nature, but we can uh, move forward experiencing the fullness of life that you've provided for us and that you have freely given us. Pray that you would enable us, strengthen us, challenge us in all these uh, ways that we might uh, pursue this. For only in this way can we uh, really demonstrate the excellence of your grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.